Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of February, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the depths of the Netherlands. And nobody will ever know that that chair was empty until five seconds ago. Well, that's completely fake news. OK, well, let's get started then. Uh, Six-month antibodies, excellent. UK Biobank Bank is uh, apparently the UK's major biomedical mi biomedical database and research, research resource, uh, and they have uh, issued a report today, uh, the six-month results of a major government-backed study of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, and uh, what they've decided is that if you've managed to get some antibodies for SARS-CoV-2, that they will last for six months. Now, of course, this may be being presented in the mainstream press is something to do with vaccination. But in fact, this has got uh, nothing to do with vaccination other than uh, that potentially following vaccination, uh, that people may be protected against subsequent infection for at least six months. But there's no evidence whatever for that. Uh, and so the headlines are slightly more than slightly misleading on this. Um, so this was a study which began, in fact, in uh, May uh, last year. Um, and uh, so this is really about people who have had COVID-19 have developed antibodies to it and uh, and the blood bank, the UK blood bank, looking at the uh, the impacts of that. So I suppose it's good news in one sense, but it's being presented as something that it isn't, as usual. I, I really can't comment anymore, uh, Mike. Um, what, what we see and hear, of course, is change for the government daily to confuse us. Um, but I'm not going to spend too much time on this one. I just wanted to highlight it uh, because it is quite an incredible situation where we've got the mainstream press, many of them, the BBC, The Guardian, ITV here, crowing that uh, Matt Hancock has revealed that Matt Damon's virus film Contagion inspired the UK's vaccine strategy. Uh, I think we probably, uh, if we look back, we'll find the contagion inspired every part of the government strategy from the beginning of this, uh, including lockdown. So uh, this is really, it's not science that uh, the government's getting its strategy from, it's Hollywood. It, it's, it's Hollywood, but we are now getting a glimpse inside the minds of uh, uh, people like Matt Hancock, because is he living in the real world? I don't believe so. He's, he's got Hollywood driving part of his brain and he's got propaganda through the spy B psychological uh, team as part of the SAGE unit. Is he functioning as a normal human being or is he just completely reframed out of existence? I think he's he's the latter. Yeah, indeed. So, well, here comes the surge then. COVID-19 testing centres coming to your door, probably delivered by the military. Um, surge testing is to be deployed uh, to monitor and suppress the spread of the new COVID-19 variants, apparently. So every person over 16 living in a, a range of locations is strongly encouraged to take a COVID test this week. Uh, whether they're showing symptoms or not is what the government is saying. Uh, the regions are uh, EN10 in the east of uh, England, W7N17 CR4 in London, uh, PR9 in the northwest, uh, ME15 and GU21 in the southeast, WS2 in the West Midlands. Uh, not sure whether any of those postcodes include Bristol and Liverpool, but they're certainly now on the list. And apparently the news just breaking this morning, Brian, is the two cases of the South Africa coronavirus variant have been found in Scarborough. 
uh, and uh, this is according to the Director of Public Health for North Yorkshire. Uh, and so uh, there's Louise Wallace. She confirmed the cases at a weekly briefing. Uh, she said that the two patients had self-isolated and there was no risk to the community. Um, but apparently uh, some of these cases of uh, the South African uh, variant, um, some of these cases have been discovered in people that haven't been doing any international travel. If you think back to the very beginning of this whole thing, uh, this was something that uh, a narrative that was pushed out at the very beginning. So the first case came into the UK and then there were a couple more cases came along. Uh, and those couple of extra cases hadn't been in contact with anybody that had been traveling internationally. So it wasn't really clear how it, it had uh, managed to get to them. Uh, and of course, the narrative that was being uh, spread was that uh, this is such a dangerous disease um, that uh, we don't even know how it's passing from one person to the next. Uh, and we're starting to see that same narrative being uh, employed with the variants. But that, that ironically, Mike, that is the overall basis for, for the COVID uh, policy at the moment. They don't know how the thing is actually passing between people. And that is why we have a raft of just ridiculous so-called protective measures. They don't, they do not know. So we're being told the truth there. Uh, quite possibly, uh, but here's here's some more truth. Uh, and this time it's from the Institute for Government. Uh, this is their insight for January 2021. Uh, coronavirus, no going back to normal is the headline. So let's just uh, run through some of the points that they're making in this. Uh, here we go. Uh, life after coronavirus will not feel like life before. It's best that governments acknowledge that and start planning now in order to capture the best that come out of a very tough period while not raising expectations that life will suddenly snap back to an almost forgotten normal. Have you almost forgotten the normal that was before coronavirus? No, I certainly haven't. It's getting stronger and stronger, Mike. But I, I will say that I am now meeting people who seem to be, I, I hate to use the expression because it's rather unpleasant, but brain dead in their present environment. It's as though that they, they're now... They're, they're now lost in a bubble of the now and they can't actually remember what real life was like even a few months a year ago, which I find deeply worrying. This is again is a result of the government's psychological attack, attack on, mm. on the civilian population in the UK. OK, well, let's continue with this then. The virus is not going to disappear, they say, and the government should not expect, sorry, should not raise expectations that it can defeat it. It is clear on current policy that a respiratory uh, sorry, a repository of infection is likely to remain in the population. What's more, the virus will mutate uh, and almost certainly strains resistant to current vaccines will emerge. So uh, the mutations will continue. This is definitely the narrative that's being built. Uh, let's move on. Social distancing and masks will have to remain in some contexts. Pressure for vaccination passports may well grow. Governments will have to find a way of explaining to people how to live with a degree of risk. Now, of course, people were very happy to live with a degree of risk uh, prior to the uh, psychological attack that uh, the British government has put on them. Uh, we lived with a degree of risk with flu, with other respiratory illnesses, uh, and uh, people died every year and, and have died every year and, and do continue to die from flu, uh, even though the, the, uh, the, the numbers say otherwise. Uh, so... This is uh, complete nonsense, but anyway, we go, we go on. One of the most difficult questions for government to address will be about permitted travel. So we're getting a clue what's coming in the future. We'll only be allowed to travel when it's permitted. Uh, the panoply of outright bans, quarantine rules, demands for tests before and after flying may stay. It's hard to know how, uh, it's hard to see how it will not. 
given the perpetual chance of new variants with the potential to spread and the cost of uh, if that did happen. So again, we're being getting the variants narrative shoved down our throats. Uh, the backlog in the NHS is not just a stack of postponed operations. It may turn out to represent a neglect of illnesses, uh, including cancer and diabetes being treated at a later stage would otherwise have happened uh, with sharply increased demands on health services in the coming years or much more likely, but not stated here, uh, a sharp increase in the deaths as a result of the lack of health care that people getting for non-COVID related incidents. Uh, they go on. Uh, this goes for children and teenagers too, where the effects of loss of schooling have yet to be fully assessed. Uh, some children will essentially have missed a year of school uh, and those who have drifted out of contact with any formal part of the education system in that time may never go back. Now, some would argue that perhaps it's not a bad thing that people are drifting out of contact with the formal education system. But on the other hand, uh, in many, many cases, if not most cases, uh, families aren't in a position to fill that gap uh, because they've got to make a living for themselves. So Patrick Kenningson's point here is that this actually is probably one of the biggest issues that we face. Uh, because it's going to take 12 years for the effects of this to actually get through the education system. We've effectively lost a generation of, uh, of educated kids for future work environment. But maybe that doesn't matter, Brian, because the fourth industrial revolution means that there isn't going to be any work for them anyway. Don't want them, don't need to train them. Children are a bit of a problem because they're there and they're growing up. But of course, the elderly people they're going to get rid of. Perhaps we should bring uh, Alex in on this one no no normal what to say brian uh, i know that you're going to get on to james dellingpole shortly but a lot of these issues have been sounded out in two uh vidcasts as he calls them the word hasn't really caught on but vid podcast with video that james dellingpole has done with patrick m wood who's been looking at this uh technocracy and transhumanism agenda for half a century since the trilateral commission started driving it on behalf of the Bilderberg Group. And in the meat of that discussion, or slightly towards the end, Wood goes into this and says that what's called the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and by the way, this is also said by the likes of Catherine Austin Fitz, what's meant is that now that we, the humans, are the stock in previous iterations of world-dominating capitalism, it was land ownership or the ownership of plant or money. Now that we, the human resources, are the capital, uh, some of the stock needs to be upgraded uh, by being computerized internally and the other needs to be dispensed with. And if you understand that clearly, then you understand also why training and education and culture have to be dispensed with. Uh, it's rather ugly to look in the face, but Mr. Wood does a very good job of it. Uh, okay, well, uh, let's move on with this then, because the uh, Institute for Government goes on. The Westminster government will come under more pressure to grant more powers to the devolved administrations or independence outright. Uh, they say in looking at the future of business and worker support, the Treasury will need to consider at some point whether to use benefit system more, as, for instance, the US has done, to support people's income while avoiding propping up jobs that cannot be sustained. So there's a bit of fourth industrial revolution in this as well. Uh, but more importantly, uh, the idea of universal basic income um, and also the Mark Carney idea of getting rid of any jobs that don't, because this language that cannot be sustained doesn't mean uh, that can't be kept going. This is about sustainability. 
uh, and the, the New Green Deal. And if you don't fit into the New Green Deal, as we're going to come on to again in a little bit later, uh, you, your job is not sustainable. It will not be propped up. So that is uh, what that's about. Uh, the government task now is to help mitigate the worst effects and preserve the best to discuss with people and businesses the level of risk and constraint they're prepared to live with. How much constraint are we prepared to live with? This is really the question that's being asked here. Uh, and help them live in a world that has changed. And that's the ultimate uh, point of this, that the world has changed. There's no going back. Now, many people saying, well, the Institute for Government, it's just another NGO, just another mouthpiece. Uh, but what's expressed in that document is probably all the major policy points that we've been talking about for the last two or three years. Certainly all the major policy points that have been raised as a result of, of COVID are in that document. It's the direction of travel is clear, and I think it would be a mistake to dismiss what's uh, what's written there. No, this is one of the think tanks um, producing policy. So we we think the government is running the country, but in reality, it's these immensely powerful think tanks that put the policy in, and that comes through. Uh, encourage our audience to get on to the Institute of Government and have a look at. Uh, who who they really are. So if you look at the funding and the collaborators, you'll see you've got the Gatsby Charitable Foundation and you've got Sainsbury's are immediately appearing on your page. And then if you start to scroll down, which I can do here live, we've got Future uh, Care Capital. Uh, we've got Microsoft UK, the Wellcome Trust, the Federation of Small Businesses, Unbound Philanthropy, the Joseph Roundtree Reform Trust, Imperial College. So they've got another foot in the door to uh, help their own policy going. Uh, the British Psychological Society. So that's interesting. So there's there's a foot in the door for the applied psychology, uh, psychological um, science in order to effectively brainwash us, condition us. Royal College of Nursing, PA Consulting, uh, Wales Centre for Public Policy. Mm. So this isn't this isn't the government in Westminster that's creating these policies, working with the um, civil service. This is very powerful think tank working with powerful outside global concerns who want these policies brought in, mm. never mind what the voting public wants. So let's have a look at this email where somebody raising concerns. Uh, dear Brian, I spoke to my sister yesterday evening, who's a healthcare assistant at a hospital in one of the shires. She's been working on the wards where people get tested for COVID since the beginning of the pandemic. One of her colleagues, a healthy nurse with no underlying health conditions, has had a COVID vaccine and has had a stroke and now keeps having fits. I'm concerned about my sister who's been, who has an underlying heart condition. She's told me she's been putting off having the vaccine, but at some point she's got to have the vaccine because, quote, it will be a requirement. Um, now, we just come back into to, uh, Alex's point. Um, we had another email come in from Natasha, who's pointing at a tweet from uh, James Dellingbowl for people worried that their employer will force them to take a vaccine. Have a look at this. Well, what is what is he pointing at? It's this open letter regarding vaccination. I think we had this up a couple of days ago, uh, Mike. Open letter, revaccination mandates by employers for employees or potential employees. And this is from UK Medical Freedom Alliance, Lawyers for Liberty and Workers of England Union. Um, it's a very, very detailed letter. I had to take a little video clip of it, which hopefully will play on screen. 
So lots of good preliminary information about law, contracts of employment, additional considerations for employers, and then a lot of detailed, very detailed information questioning the validity of the vaccine, uh, bringing out um, concerns and risks of the vaccine. And what particularly impressed me about this open letter, as you'll see once we get down to the end, uh, we have a very long list of references. So everything's in it from data protection to discrimination, a nice little summary. And then from here on, you'll see that we get link after link through to very valid information, which has either come from government sources or is directly published in the public domain and therefore admissible in court. Uh, we'll actually be coming back onto this in just a minute. But before we do that, um, just a reminder, uh, I think from Monday's programme, uh, this was a BBC headline, COVID vaccine offered to all care homes in England. And we were making the point, if you remember, uh, about the situation of uh, over 80s COVID deaths uh, since the vaccine was introduced. So the red dotted line there shows the first vaccine uh, delivered. And then if we put a seven day moving average on that, you can see that the uh, the rate of death uh, post vaccination is much higher than the rate of death in the period pre-vaccination. Uh, well, I just want to highlight uh, this article, which uh, has gone up on the UK Column website uh, overnight. Uh, why is there a correlation between the vaccine rollout and increased COVID-19 mortality? This is by Ian Davis. Fantastic article, lots of information there, all referenced. Uh, so the fact checkers should have some fun with that. Uh, but I would urge everybody to share that as uh, widely as possible, if you could, please. Yeah, very important. And we'll say again and again that there's a lot of material on the UK Column website that I think is being overlooked. So if you visit us, if you come and have a look at the website, get into the search engine and search through uh, articles. But there were many articles, there are many articles written maybe five or six years ago now, which are even more relevant uh, with events today than uh, possibly when they were originally written. So get onto the UK Column website and search for that information. Um, Alex, if we've uh, got a developing problem with the deaths of our idiots in the UK as a result of the vaccine, in fact, globally, uh, but what's the situation in the Netherlands? On screen there is uh, the uh, Dutch leader of the Forum for Democracy, Forum for Democracy Party, Thierry Baudet. Uh, who is the gentleman who drew attention to the deliberate cuts in the Dutch armed forces and undermanning and under equipment uh, in Parliament a couple of years ago. He's come under sustained attack, which I've outlined in UK Column Extra to subscribers in uh, recent weeks. But here he is uh, going full frontal against the fact checkers that you've just mentioned with regard to Ian Davis's article, uh, because the usual trick with fact checkers is, of course, that they go on official statements which they don't follow up in order to rebut, uh, shall we say, non-aligned uh, statements, uh, State, statements against the alignment of the of, of uh, the state and the medical authorities. So uh, what we have here is he's uh, broadcasting the uh, data showing that there is no excess mortality, for which the Dutch word is oversterfte or over death, for 2020 for at least the Dutch population. This seems to apply, as you reported to uh, Mike, uh, to Spain and many other Western European countries. So the piece for those who can read Dutch and, and understand it is geen significante oversterfte in 2020. But uh, you can find it, uh, you can just see on screen or if you find that video and play it, it's clear what he's saying. Look at the red bands. Uh, the 2020 excess mortality is higher than 2020. 
he has been rebutted by, shall we say, uh, the, the, the mainstream media and most uh, of the, the main larger parties on the basis that, oh yes, there is excess mortality, and he comes straight back at them and says, but this is extrapolated data, There's, or, or, or even more than that, forecast data. Uh, how do people know on what basis have they calculated that more people are going to die? Uh, so he's worked out what the game is there. Okay, thank you very much. Now, uh, I'm going to get your thoughts on this in a second, but on Monday as well, we, uh, we put this up. Uh, this is from the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. This has nothing to do with the European Union. This is Council of Europe, and they had issued a resolution, uh, 2361, uh, which basically was saying that vaccination can only happen uh, once there is informed consent, that it's not mandatory, uh, that no one is politically, socially or otherwise pressured to get themselves vaccinated if they do not wish to do so themselves. It also went on to say that uh, governments had to ensure that no one was is discriminated against for not having been vaccinated due to possible health reasons uh, or not wanting to be vaccinated uh, and that they have to distribute uh, transparent information on the safety and possible side effects of the vaccines. Uh, now, uh, we received this message from a viewer uh, so thank you very much for this. And our viewer says on Monday's show, you made reference to the European Parliamentary Assembly resolution uh, in regards to ethics surrounding vaccines. You're the only news source I've seen cover this in any detail, radio silence from the mainstream news. My understanding, however, is that these resolutions are not legally binding. Uh, I've seen a lot of people get excited over this, but the purpose of the resolutions is merely only to set out political positions and not to fall under any treaties. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Just thought it may be important for viewers to understand that. Um, Alex, my understanding is that that's absolutely correct. Uh, the Council of Europe, uh, your, the EU, uh, sorry, the UK is still a, a part of the Council of Europe because it's not a, an EU body. Uh, but uh, uh, and its main institution, of course, is the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, and theoretically, the British government can ignore the uh, the the uh, any utterances of the European Court of Human Rights. But is it likely to? There is a massive political cost for doing so, Mike. And yes, the viewer who writes is absolutely spot on. The whole point of the Council of Europe, not the Council of the European Union, the Council of Europe, which is based in Strasbourg and was founded in 1950 with much uh, effort by Churchill, was that every geographically European country would sign up to certain minimum standards of human rights, fair process and good government in the non-nobbled versions of the term, the, the, the proper versions of the term. And only Belarus in the whole of geographical Europe is not a member of the Council of Europe. Every state and territory in Europe is. So the only treaty-based and binding part of it is that the parties agreed to set up the European Court of Human Rights, popularly known as going to Strasbourg to win your case. And again, the, uh, the findings here are not enforceable over states, but they can, by criticizing a government which has signed up to the ECHR, force uh, obligations and of course in many uh, parties to the European Convention on Human Rights the judges will put such decisions above national law and constitutions not in Britain because we have a dualist uh, doctrine rather than uh, than monist but absolutely right it's it's unlikely uh, that you can as a government certainly the United Kingdom with its you know its history of being a figurehead for human rights ignore such resolutions there is one more very important thing about the uh, parliamentary assembly uh, part of the Council of Europe. This is a club of senior respected members of parliament from across the member states of the ECHR, the signatory states. 
and they, although they have usually dispatched their special rapporteurs, spelt the French way, special rapporteurs, to Eastern European countries to wag fingers at them for uh, treating detainees poorly, there is precedent for a Moldovan special rapporteur having been appo appointed by the ECH, sorry, by the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe to come to a Western European country, namely France, and go to, if I'm not wrong, the very prison that Linthia has just got out of, Fleury Mirogi and criticise them for being worse than Eastern Bloc prisons. So the, the head of steam that can develop is that people can lobby their parliamentarians, particularly those who sit directly in the PAC, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, and you can do this from around Europe, lobby them to appoint a special rapporteur on the matter. These are the, shall we say, the heaviest hitting wrist smackers that the Council of Europe can appoint because they are elected parliamentarians. Okay, so thank you for that. So, so uh, it would be silly for the government to uh, ignore uh, such a resolution. But in the meantime, let me just remind you about the government's own uh, Public Health England's own vaccination program training material. This is the core training slide set for health practitioners. Uh, and they make it absolutely clear consent is required. Now, they don't say anything in particular about coercion. Uh, but they certainly say, uh, discuss consent, uh, and by coercion, I mean uh, in terms of any kind of sanctions taken against anybody that chooses not to have uh, uh, the vaccine. So informed consent, the need for informed consent is a legal requirement, and the patient's views must be respected and consent sought. So it's a legal requirement, the views must be respected. Well, in order to respect someone's views, it would be very difficult to, uh, to take some kind of sanction against them. But the, the, the big problem for many people is the headlines that are coming out, as we've reported over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, of companies saying that they were going to require vaccination if you're going to be an employee. Uh, and the Daily Telegraph, in, in an opinion piece, very firmly saying, no, no jab, no job, right? Um, so the next question is this, uh, can employers force staff to have the COVID vaccine? Now, this is from People Management. It was published in December but they do make some reasonable points. Uh, so first of all, they say, in short, no, employers can't force staff to have the COVID, COVID vaccine. In theory, they say, if there is a thorough medical examinations clause in the contract of employment, it could be relied upon. However, this would still be fraught with risk and freely given consent is required for any medical intervention. Uh, they go on to say, if employers uh, were to try to force their employees to be vaccinated, not only could it give rise to human rights concerns, but there could also be criminal implications. Forcing anyone to receive a vaccine injection under duress under UK law would constitute an unlawful injury. A vaccination requires an individual's informed and voluntary consent. Uh, if an employee's refusal to be vaccinated is down to a disability, protected religious or philosophical belief, and results in disciplinary action from their employee, they may be able to issue a direct or indirect discrimination claim and claim constructive unfair dismissal if they resign in protest. So uh, it's, it's pretty clear that, you know, ultimately, uh, and Brian and Alex, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, but ultimately this may end up in court. But as things stand at the moment, it seems pretty clear that the law is on the side of the individual in, in terms of consent and also in terms of not being discriminated against if you choose not to have a vaccine. That's, that's correct, Mike, but as we'll see in a minute, I've, I've got a case with a mask over going in, into Tesco. I know it's a slightly different subject, but you will see that the law just goes into mush. I'll explain that in the thing. So this, <clears throat> this is the point that most people do not know what the law is, whether it is an employer trying to enforce the vaccine or it's somebody trying to defend themselves against it. 
the government policy has deliberately taken knowledge of the law into a very vague chaotic area so so that they can force the policy through and i find it extremely unpleasant that the nhs should be one of the most brutal employees employers for um basically threatening employees that mm. they must be vaccinated an employer which should be taking the wishes and concerns of its own employees into account is one of the most draconian in getting heavy-handed and saying you will have a vaccine um, so, alex uh, you know you've got some law background but what what do you think is the situation where a government public well first of all is a signatory to the echr and so on but uh, publishes in its own training material uh, information which would be contrary to any case that they would attempt to bring in a court. Sorry. In terms of this, even with my former desk colleague, Catherine Gunn, turning a whistleblower against GCHQ, uh, a relevant part of what would have been her case if the Crown Prosecution Service had not pulled it because they knew they would lose it, would have been just her point uh, or her lawyer's point on her behalf that the training on what was the law uh, in the matter or what's often called in the intelligent world now legalities was at odds with the law and lawfulness and um, you know as, as brian and also david scott have been saying recently uh, law is being trumped by policy at many points but do not lose heart if you are having uh, a contretemps with security guards police even junior courts persist if you have the resources and determination to do so because when you get into the proper crown court system there's still a number of judges who do take a look properly at the law and as brian has been hinting a moment ago we have now half a century behind us of malicious society destroying employment law being forced upon us to destroy common law but one thing that we can reverse engineer or boomerang back at the authorities now is that as brian says all of that body of law and these tribunals these low-level courts that shouldn't really exist that uh, administer the system is they all take up the case of the employee against the employer if you stick to that there's nothing in that body of employment law i'm aware of which will say that the employer has a prior right over the employee the whole point is and you put that word up on screen mike protected characteristics so this is the last generation the last decade of this from harriet harman's dying gasp of the labor government the equalities act 2010 what's um, what's the result of that there are protected characteristics anyone can pop up and say i am a theosophist i'm a christian i'm a skeptic of any kind uh, or i have disabilities self-assertion of this is often enough when you get in front of proper courts do not be put off by the lower levels and ignorant police because training as you just said mike is there to obfuscate the matter yes okay thank you for that okay let's uh, let's move on to this uh, the eu then uh, has said that they are open to uh, receiving this is ursula von der leyen in fact opening open to receiving vaccines from russia and china uh, but only if russia and china show transparency um so uh, they would get emergency authorization if they were prepared to show transparency about their vaccines. So I'm not going to comment on the, 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 the desire for the EU to get uh, vaccines from Russia and China. It's a transparency issue because all this emergency approval for the vaccines that we've got already, there's been absolutely zero transparency uh, all the way through the process. We haven't had proper clinical trials done. The full data isn't available for the trials that have been done. Uh, and the yellow card system, which is there from the MHRA in the UK, uh, to log adverse reactions as the vaccine experiment is rolled out. Uh, well, that data is not available uh, either. 
So it's a bit ironic, perhaps, that Ursula is demanding transparency from Russia and China before they'll take their vaccines when they've had no transparency from Pfizer or AstraZeneca or Moderna or any of the others. Uh, but they're quite happy to take those. Well, hypocrisy is part, part of the uh, EU model, isn't it, Mike? So I suppose we shouldn't be too surprised. Uh, well, where does that take us? Uh, Chris Whitty, uh, quite a furore in the mainstream press about uh, this little video about Chris Whitty. We're not going to show it all, just uh, just the beginning of it. Uh, but uh, the man who took it being, or the uh, teenager who took it being described as uh, sick, appalling, uh, various different descriptions for him uh, because really the Chris Whitty can deserve no criticism. Um, well, I, I'm going to say I think the person who took the video was a little bit in his face, used to use that word, and um, was calling him a, a liar. Uh, what would have been more effective is if uh, he'd been asking, why are you not reporting this? Why are you not reporting these facts? Why are you dismissing? So it was just the fact that the person who took the video was a little bit a little bit hard I felt but what caught caught my eye with this video clip is of course he was walking along the street he's gone past other people he's breathing his uh, very dangerous breath all over the place he's inhaling other people's breath but when you stand to buy something then you've got to put a mask on I couldn't think of a better clip to show how ludicrous this is and where does he keep his mask stuffed in his trouser pocket I bet his handkerchief's also in that pocket so when he puts his mask on actually what he's doing is breathing his um, nasal debris and detrius out on other people so this is where it gets serious because the impact of his ridiculous policies uh, comes into Tesco and thank you very much for the person who sent this through so it's from Newbury today disabled Hungerford woman threatens to sue Tesco following store ban over coronavirus face mask row bit of a mouthful of that let's have a look at what was said in it well the disabled woman's threatened legal action who reportedly ejected her for not wearing a face mask. So this is pretty straightforward. The Hungerford woman has suffered four heart attacks and suffers from cardiac arrhythmia, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and asthma. That is quite a catalogue of, uh, mental, uh, of uh, medical conditions, which means she's very vulnerable. Would you want to wear a mask uh, suffering from those conditions? I don't think so. Although not required to do so by law or government guidelines, she wears a lanyard which states she's exempt from wearing a mask designed to help spread the spread, prevent the spread of coronavirus. Just very quickly there, Alex, I thought that last sentence was, was very, um, what was the word, deceptive. Just have a look at it on the screen again. Although not required to do so by law or government guidelines, she wears a lanyard. So they've taken the wearing of the mask, which is the real issue, and spun it as to whether the law is applying to wearing a lanyard. Now, either this is just a journalistic mistake or it's a very clever piece of manipulating with people's minds. Well, of course, a lot of these pieces are not genuinely local news from start to finish uh, in the chain of production because of the buying up of them by central titles, international in many cases. But at, at a most objective reading, it is at least a step up from pieces you have been covering last week, where the national press, particularly the mid-market segment, uh, has been saying, 
uh, let's look at these poor suffering disabled people that we're pretending to champion and let us say how much uh, easier their lives would be and how much less hassle they would get if the government made us all carry documents stating our exemption as here on the continent because the health ministry in the Netherlands for example has gone gone all out on that and said your medical details are private but if you don't show an exemption uh, you'll get beaten up and taken out of the store anyway. Now Britain doesn't have that so it is at least a step up or perhaps if, if you've listened to John Waters and, uh, and the other Irish commentators like John Anthony that we put on the website, uh, it's a, an early sign uh, that the press are thinking, particularly closer to the ground in local press, who are, uh, if we carry on this way and get rumbled, uh, we will not be able to prove that we were on the people's side. So at least if we take the overt meaning of that sentence, it's an indication that there is movement towards uh, acknowledging that there is no legal force. Uh, or policy force to these requirements. But yes, it is deceptively written because people do tend to go to the second part of the sentence when they read these long sentences. Yeah, um, thank you for that, Alex. Well, okay, so we've, we've got a hint of encouragement there that perhaps there's something happening local level. Let's fill in another one. Despite this, she says, the lady said she was asked to comply or leave by staff and a store manager from Tesco in Hungerford. So that was the key bit of the article, but um, we got a little bit more. The woman's asked not to be identified after she reportedly suffered a backlash on social media. So how interesting that we should have a backlash against a woman suffering from some really very serious medical conditions. She needs to feed herself. Was there a backlash on social media? Did that backlash come from 77 Brigade, for example? We've no way of knowing. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the lady said, ironically, the lanyard around my neck had been given to me by Tesco staff. But on this occasion, I was approached by the store manager who said I'd have to leave if I couldn't wear a mask. Uh, he said two members of the local police team had been in that same morning and warned him not to allow anyone in without a mask. Now, I, I would guess that, that that sentence is correct. So the member of staff, Tesco staff, had been threatened effectively by local police. And as a result of those threats, he was no longer capable of interpreting his own store's policy. Uh, the lady said, I feel people like myself are being discriminated against. Quote, this is against the law. And of course, she's quite correct. So um, the uh, Tesco CEO was a gentleman called Ken Murphy, didn't actually say this, but since his store said it, we can say it effectively comes from his mouth. Since the start of the pandemic, we have focused on ensuring everyone can get the food they need in a safe environment. OK, uh, to protect our customers and colleagues, we won't let anyone into our store who is not wearing a face covering unless they are exempt in line with government guidance. And we're sorry the woman was unhappy with our service on this occasion. And Alex, I'm just going to come back to you again because we've got this beautiful mix in what's being said here. So on one hand, it's said very clearly that throwing the lady out of the store was against their own policy and we know it was against the law. And then that is translated into uh, saying that the, the lady was somehow, we don't quite understand how or why, but she was somehow unhappy with our service. This is very this is, uh, <laughs> Go ahead. This is typical British doublespeak. 
uh, and you and I might understand it uh, innately, our foreign viewers perhaps less, um, but it's come into sharper relief to me and now as I try to translate that mentally into what a Dutch store would say, the bit that you put in red about we're sorry, a Dutch store would simply say, and that is why we booted her out. Right. So because you can't say that in polite society in Britain, uh, not all the English speaking world, but certainly in, in Britain, particularly in the home counties of England, what you say instead was, I'm so, so sorry that that's the case, which means I'm not sorry at all. So, yes, very much deceptive and written. Let's put on our an, an analytical linguistic caps again, written by someone possibly of the female and the young persuasion, possibly not. I don't want to be shot down in flames for suggesting it, but particularly, as you said, with that police uh, PR puff piece that came out last week, uh, I think very much from a media background where you use uh, adjectives and adverbs liberally, even the police now doing it. We're incredibly serious about this, which literally means you cannot believe a word we say. So, yes, the, the, the adjectives and adverbs indicate a thing or two. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, we must just end with this one. Uh, uh, basically, the paper, the local paper did print the government guidelines. So I, uh, I want to make clear that they did that. So that's a feather in their cap. But we've we've already covered that on the news. Um, but this one, what sort of law abiding supermarket is Tesco? Well, it didn't take me too long. Uh, back to 2014, Tesco suspends execs as inquiry launched into profit overstatement. And uh, they ended up suspending four executives, including the UK managing director, after the supermarket overstated its half-year profit guidance by a mere 250 million. So can we trust Tesco to uh, follow the law? Um, it doesn't appear so. Mm. Now, just to put up a... Uh, well, is it a correction or not? I'm going to leave the audience to decide. Um, we had this clip in Monday's news of former nurse Debbie Evans talking about the dangers of COVID-19 swab. And um, we had an email in which said this, which I wanted to share. I'm a retired SRN2. I saw the retired ENT, ENT nurse interviewed on today's show. The following item was not about the cribriform plate. It was about an unusual case where the patient had previously had nasal polyps removed and the operation must have left a hole in the bone through which the brain covering bulged out. Nobody knew until she had the COVID nasal swab and this hernia-like bulge was damaged, allowing cerebral spinal fluid to leak and start running out of her nostril. Very serious problem that was fixed. However, the nurse was talking about the crib cribriform plate, which is in the central position near the back of the eyes, it is where the nerves for our sense of smell pass through a fragile area of small holes in the skull from the nose into the brain. I've read a lot of people complain of pain and aching eyes after having the swab and no wonder it's a dangerous procedure in the wrong hands. So somebody with medical uh, qualifications there just really pointing out that the second um, um, detail that we gave was indeed about a case where the lady had nasal polyps. I did mention that on the programme, but I think uh, the reason we'll pop this one up again is I used a diagram on that second one effectively to show the sort of area that we were looking at, but the little yellow arrows in this case are actually uh, uh, pointing at effectively this little brain hernia the lady had at the top of her nose, not at the uh, uh, cribriform plate. Um, that uh, Debbie Evans was talking about. So we just wanted to be very precise over that. However, 
That second article said very clearly at the end, as the number of daily COVID-19 nasal and nasopharyngeal swab specimen collection procedures increasing, a greater burden is placed on the healthcare system to, quote, properly train clinicians and even the general public to safely perform nasal and nasopharyngeal swab testing. Uh, have you been trained? I have certainly not been trained. N neither have I, uh, but increasing numbers of people are having lateral flow tests sent home where they're expected to stick a swab up their nostril uh, and use that to get a rapid uh, COVID test. We haven't had training on how to do that. Um, so uh, what are the, what's the likelihood of uh, injury? Uh, it's extremely high. Yes. And, uh, I knew nothing about this subject until a couple of weeks ago, but as I've started to read into it, I now uh, know how dangerous it is to stick something deeply into your nostril, up your nose, and yet the government is trying to tell us that people just go through some low-key training course or you can have one of these kits sent home and you do it yourself unbelievably dangerous and of course the point from that second uh, article or the article we raised about the lady with nasal polyps in America is that if you have any underlying weakness or health condition affecting the top of your nose you can do yourself immense damage as a result of this so-called safe test so once again UK government deceiving the public and lying over the risks of a test which they're trying to get everybody to indulge in. And because the UK government's lying about it, then of course the fact checkers, uh, well, they just repeat what they're told. Indeed. So, um, okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to join us there. Uh, you'd be very welcome and that would be very much appreciated but please also uh, share our material on the various platforms uh, that we are on uh, and uh, that would be appreciated as well and do share the uh, the article on over 80s uh, deaths and the vaccines that we mentioned earlier in the program now let's uh, move on to this then uh, well obviously the Davos event was last week we did mention it a couple of times uh, but uh, they have launched a new thing uh, it's called Mission Possible Partnership. Uh, this is the little promotional video for it. Uh, and this is all about decarbonizing cement, steel, aluminium, chemicals, uh, as well as ships, planes, and the trucks that move them. Um, so they say if business continues as usual by 2030, these global industries will exceed the total amount of carbon the world can emit this century based on a 1.5 degree carbon budget. Our goal is to propel a committed community of CEOs from carbon intensive industries together with their financiers, customers and suppliers to agree and more importantly to act on the essential decisions required to decarbonize industry transport in, the, in this decade. We're orchestrating high ambition disruption uh, through net zero industry platforms for seven of the world's most carbon intensive sectors, which of course is all about building. It's all about infrastructure. Uh, but we've got to decarbonize all those. It's also about moving goods from one part of the world to another. Um, so who's behind this? Uh, well, let's have a look. Uh, this is the Mission Possible Partnership and they've got a number of partners there, uh, but the two key ones are on the left. Well, World Economic Forum, of course, is one of them, but the two key ones on the left, the Energy Transitions Commission, uh, and the Rocky Mountain Institute. And who is the chairman of both those organizations? 
Uh, well, it is the wonderful Lord Adair Turner. Now, anybody that doesn't know who Adair Turner is, he was the chair of the uh, Finance, uh, Financial Standards Authority at the time of the 2008 financial crash. So he was responsible for banking and uh, trading standards uh, at the time of that crash. Uh, he didn't do his job properly um, as the regulator. Uh, obviously, Baron Turner these days of Ekinswell, uh, he is chair of the Rocky Mountain Institute uh, and uh, that was a merger with Richard Branson's uh, Carbon War Room in 2014. And, uh, uh, and he's also chair uh, of, uh, uh, what was the other organization? The Energy Transitions Commission. So uh, Alex, I don't know what you think about this, but uh, the, the, this whole uh, carbon zero thing is really about global deindustrialization. And of course, global deindustrialization equals depopulation because uh, without modern manufacturing mechanisms and modern transportation systems. We, we are not in the UK, for example, food independent. Uh, we rely on transportation to bring food into this country. So either we're going to have a smaller population we don't need to bring food into the country. Well, or what? Actually, there is no plan B. Britain was one of the first countries in the world, in fact, 1700-ish, to stop being self-sufficient, first in grains and then also in vegetables and latterly even meats. Uh, so you can see that we're in a particular bind. We're not a continental economy like the United States or Canada or Australia or the Russian Federation that can supply all their food and their industry from their own materials. We could be. But we're obviously choking ourselves off here. Remember that the Germans very nearly choked us off in both world wars through their U-boat campaign because of this. We needed constant imports of grain from Canada and uh, Australia to get us through. And then, of course, we ditched those uh, Commonwealth uh, brother nations, as it were, overnight to join the EEC in 1973. Yes, this is a very dark uh, agenda indeed, this decarbonisation. If you supply humans for carbon, then you understand what's going on because, of course, they're not talking about carbon dioxide often, but just getting rid of carbon, which, of course, is the base of us as a life form. I know it's shorthand, but it's a rather worrying one. Uh, the first note sounded to deindustrialize Western Europe was actually by the very long-serving European commissioner back in the 1970s for energy policy, a Belgo -Frank, uh, well, Franco-Belgian uh, nobleman called Etienne d'Avignon, who has repeatedly been identified as one of the Ten names, the X tens, uh, who were involved, who were covered up by Belgian prosecutors in the Marc Dutroux knock-on case. So, in other words, the high-end consumers of children. And uh, I'm, I'm not libeling us here. This has been well over the internet and never been uh, questioned. But whenever you trace it back to source, you find people. Uh, Maurice Strong would be another in this league, although I don't know about him being involved with children. But people with an extremely dark agenda uh, of getting rid of people. Yes. Uh, I mean, Adair Turner, as I say, uh, you know, obviously was uh, the, the finance regulator, uh, a colleague of Mark Carney. Mark Carney has made it absolutely clear that we're going to put any business out of business that doesn't uh, conform to these requirements to decarbonise. And if people are put out of business, people are going to go hungry and get stressed and people are going to die. Well, that probably is a good segment to lead us into the SNP and um, yesterday quite late yesterday evening i had a call from um, david scott who said to me was i aware of what was happening with the smp i wasn't and um, what he pointed me out were these reports um, so the first one from the daily record joanna cherry sacking a tremor before the smp volcano explodes 
the MP for Edinburgh South Southwest sorry Joanna Cherry has been sacked from her front bench role in the SNP Westminster group uh, this is another report here from the Telegraph SNP rift escalates as sacked MP blames party colleagues for provoking online threats now we're going to hear from uh, David Scott himself uh, bringing us Northern Exposure in just just a moment but uh, with this Telegraph report there was some um, uh, tweets this is from Joanna Cherry QC herself she said thank you for your concern but this is what can happen when you rile up your base with lies and smears actions have consequences so please think hard again before you attack a colleague on social media so that's uh, pretty upfront uh, <clears throat> this is uh, Carol Monaghan MP who's replying she's saying this is horrifying having been on the receiving end of such threats myself I know how at uh, Joanna Cherry will be feeling all of us need to take a good hard look at the consequence of our behavior few are blameless now remember we've got M uh, MPs um, MSPs talking to each other here something really dark and unpleasant starting to emerge inside the SNP uh, let's hear just part of uh, the report that uh, David Scott gave us and you'll be able to see the rest of that report on the UK column um, the, the, there was a headline today which actually was very good very well judged and summed it up in um, the uh, local newspaper the Daily Record the, the Glasgow based newspaper and the headline reads uh, Joanna Cherry sacking a tremor before the SMP volcano explodes and I actually don't think that's overstating it um, so we we reported on uh, UK column news extra yesterday that Joanna Cherry had been sacked so she was the front bench spokesman for the Westminster parliamentary SMP group on home affairs and um, the law legal affairs and she was sacked for being not a team player and Kenny McCaskill was sacked presumably for the same reason now these are all people who support Alex Salmond and who are calling for some degree of justice and some degree of transparency um, regarding what they perceive and what um, SMP insiders have for months been explicitly calling uh, a stitch up a politically motivated witch hunt against Alex Salmond um, generated by Nicola Sturgeon and her clique within the party so we're talking about full civil war and it's getting very very nasty and Joanna Cherry um, who might soon be SNP leader she was saying that uh, Scotland really doesn't need another independence referendum in order to be independent uh, because we could have the Irish option she meant that in 1918, um, when a majority of the Irish MPs elected, uh, supported Irish independence, there was then a discussion, a negotiation between the MPs and Westminster, and, and, a, and a deal was done on home rule. She's suggesting that we lost in 2014. The Scottish people wanted to be part of the UK. So we don't want to lose again we're not going to give people another say um, we're going to we're going to use the electoral system which like all electoral system has imbalances and skews and quirks 
and we're going to get a means through that and through a lot of legalistic argument, because being a Q QC, she likes legalistic argument. And we're going to make, we're going to subdivide Britain, we're going to remove Britain, we're going to end Britain, Great Britain as a, as a, as a coherent um, political entity using deals done behind closed doors, using legal arguments. And we're not going to ask the people. We've seen here a party which has had a great deal of electoral success. Um, we've seen that they are now falling apart. They are destroyed from the inside. Corruption rules. Good people are disheartened and want out. And the fight is left between different cliques, um, none of which have an agenda, none of which have a programme, none of which have a belief system which will generate peace and tranquility. Um, so we'll be left with choices between increasingly toxic types of democracy. Well, a lot of very serious things, David, um, intimating in, in that uh, short report. If you go to the UK column, there's about half an hour of the full report, which I'll encourage people to go and read. Um, Alex, a number of points there. We've got the toxic breakdown uh, of the SNP. I found that pretty interesting in, in the interview that I did with uh, David last night. At the end of it, I read him out a piece from the Christopher Story table talking about internal politics, poisonous breakdown, a sense of drift, a failure. Um, and I read him that uh, statement, which of course we're going to be covering in part three of our look at applied psychological attack on UK. And David's response was, well, that description fits. We've got a party destroying itself from the inside. We've got an intent an intent to break apart um, the United Kingdom. And we've really got a glimpse that democracy is disappearing out the door. Where do you want to start? Well, the first thing I'll say is that we will go into more detail on this in extra time uh, for our viewers, I think. Uh, and the second thing to say is that we will um, uh, also be postponing some of the to extra time some of the other content that we were going to get through on this and on defense issues uh, so that if you haven't joined up you should become a subscriber to get more detail in extra time now oh, for those who keep asking by the way you log in to ukcolumn.org uh, slash community and then you will find extra time under the members blogs um, sorry members forums and then uh, then you'll find extra time there now this is really really complex why should the rest of the world or even the rest of the UK care? Two key things, really. Sexuality and democracy. And in fact, if you want to complete the triangle, you should go to, as David mentions in the piece with you last night, go to Norman Dodds being interviewed on the tax-exempt foundations, the Rockefeller Institutes and the like, because they dispatched some of their top people from the US to Scotland uh, when devolution, so Scottish uh, federal, uh, as it were, uh, self-rule, um, came in in 1999 for this very reason to complete the, the triangle. The tax-exempt foundations, as Patrick M. Wood uh, has said in his latest appearance with James Dellingpole, do not wish democracy. They do not want a political order at all. But in order to get rid of the political system, you have to go through 
the Marxist stage, which is why we're doing the Christopher Story coverage in a separate series. So that's one data point. Another data point is that if you can divide society through visceral hatreds of each other over sexualities, you're well on the way to achieving that, particularly when, just like with environmental activism, also mentioned by Wood and Dellingpole, people can turn up and say, we're not part of this uh, discussion, but we are stakeholders anyway because uh, you're destroying society. So you can have that with special interest groups in sex as well. Now let's get to the dirty bit before I hand back to you. What David has been beating, well, not talk, talking around politely, not at all beating around the bush, but talking politely about, is some pretty hideous things that have gone on in the last 24, 48 hours. We have got a lesbian of one kind, Kirsty Blackman, who is the deputy leader of the Scottish National Party group in the Westminster Parliament, stoking up by uh, wide admissions uh, of many people, such as Craig Murray and even SNP MPs are saying it now, stoking up events against another lesbian of the traditional kind, who doesn't believe, for example, that trans people are women trans men to women are women and so you've got a lesbian threatening a lesbian and this is before we get on to Mari Black the youngest MP in centuries who's also at the SNP and also a lesbian you've got a lesbian threatening a lesbian with being raped if she does not shut her mouth by men right so one kind of lesbian the trans embracing kind is saying I will well through the procuration of others is the allegation is saying I will set men on you to rape you if you don't shut up and that this, this uh, threatened lesbian, Joanna Cherry, is, as we've heard, a senior lawyer, a Queen's counsel. And for all of her faults, as David outlines in that piece, she is actually not entirely on board with the tyranny to the extent of others. For example, uh, up in Holyrood, the other end of the Scottish National Party representation, the MSPs, Humza Yousaf, who's the Justice Minister and an MSP, has been proposing to make it illegal to criticise the status as women of trans men to women. And it was Joanna Cherry within the party who was holding that up and saying we must have freedom of expression not least for my fellow traditional lesbians and uh, you know other women who simply wish to say these are not women that you're talking about so I, it's i know that i'm sounding disparate here but try to hold in your mind particularly if you're in the us or the commonwealth somewhere and thinking what's this got to do with us this is you know uh, strangeness of chili jocoland this is a test bed and has been deliberately meant to, and primed to be so. If you watch the Christopher Story series, you will understand a bit more of this. Scotland has been primed in this way to take certain people out of the equation. Watch extra time for a coverage of a blog that explains just how this is done. But it makes certain th things unsayable and certain people unpeople, including prime candidates to take over the leadership of a party, that they're now cowering in safe houses, being threatened by fellow lesbians, uh, apparently by, uh, by, by the prospect of being raped by men. And it's not just us saying this, it's nearly half of the Scottish National Party. Uh, pretty horrific stuff. Mm -hmm. Mike, have you got anything to add in there? No. Uh, otherwise, I'd just uh, like to pop up on screen the part two of the article of the discussion that Alex and I have been having on the psychological attack on the UK. Part two has now got 22,000 views. Uh, 2,900 thumbs up, a lot of very good and interesting comments. They're worth reading just on their own. Um, but what were we talking about? We were talking, amongst other things, about the use of women and homosexuals to destroy uh, UK and Western military and the, the intelligence community uh, communities. And as we point out in our discussion, that was being shown as as the intended policy by KGB defectors so we raised the question why would they be suggesting that the gay community and women could be used as a weapon so a lot of interest in that discussion 
part three, which we're already working on, we're discussing how the same form of vicious psychology, according to that KGB defector, was going to be used to destroy uh, uh, United Kingdom and Western uh, politi uh, political parties and political policy. So you may be interested to go on to the UK column and have a look at that. Um, well, I think we'll end on this one, Brian, if you're OK with that. Uh, but uh, Media Bias Fact Check is one of these uh, organisations which is there to uh, generate ideas and idea of trust. This is something that the British government has really been pushing. You can, should only be going to trusted sources for your information. And of course, trusted sources are the government, uh, the mainstream press uh, and various other so-called fact checking organisations. So in order to launder the reputations of uh, these uh, organisations, uh, in order to destroy the reputations of uh, anybody that's providing a counter narrative, uh, organisations like Media Bias Fact Check were set up. Now, uh, they have had a report on the UK column for quite a long time. Uh, this is how it was uh, going back a year or so, I think. Uh, and we were described as being a conspiracy pseudoscience uh, website, or at least in that category. Uh, but uh, apparently our conspiracy level was strong, uh, but our pseudoscience level at that time was, was zero. We were, not, uh, a pseudo, we were not pumping out any pseudoscience uh, whatsoever, Brian, at that point. And therefore, our factual reporting was described as mixed. Um, now, uh, it, that's been updated because obviously a year has gone past and uh, COVID has happened, lockdown has happened, and we've taken certain positions on that. Uh, so now we are medium uh, with, or sorry, moderate with respect to pseudoscience. Uh, we are a moderate pseudoscience level, so we've been upgraded there. Uh, we're still strong in conspiracy. Uh, and apparently that now means that for factual reporting, we're categorized as low. Um, so one of the problems that uh, media, media bias fact check has on us, uh, and the same with, with others like NewsGuard, for example, is that they claim that uh, the ownership of the UK column isn't clear. Uh, well, it seems pretty clear to me, but perhaps not to them. Uh, and they also are concerned that uh, they don't know anything about us as individuals, um, which is all a bit ironic as uh, because uh, we'll come on to that in a second. But here's their methodology. They talk about a methodology uh, when determining bias. Uh, there isn't any true scientific formula that's 100% effective. Uh, there are objective measures that can be calculated, but ultimately there may be some degree of subjective judgment. Uh, and they go on to say that really, uh, in fact, there's a disclaimer on the website that says that nothing on that website can be taken uh, for granted. But anyway, they categorize various uh, news outlets, for example, CNN, they've got uh, over to the left on the political spectrum, Fox News over to the right on the political spectrum, but not far right, just to the right. Uh, and Reuters, amazingly, is, is absolutely uh, unbiased there, according to them. Yeah, quite right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, factual, uh, a factual reporting score of low, uh, which is what we have, apparently, uh, means that the source rarely uses credible sources and is simply not trustworthy for reliable information. Well, uh, look, I leave it to our viewers and listeners and our readers on the website to make a judgment on this. Uh, everything that we have said today has been backed up with documentation, with references, uh, and not to uh, other websites, but to the source material from the government or from the NGOs or from the uh, Public Health England or wherever it happens to be. Now, you may uh, debate with us about our interpretation of, of those, but nonetheless, we are using uh, what even Media Bias Fact Check would claim would be credible sources for the information that we uh, we provide. So, um, okay, that's their position. Uh, nonetheless, 
The person who runs this organization is a guy called Dave Van Zandt. Uh, he lives apparently in North Carolina. Nobody knows very much about him. He gives no biographical information on the website. Uh, apparently, he's been freelancing for 25 years on a variety of print and media, uh, print and web mediums. Uh, this is his words, with a focus on media bias and the role of media in politics. Uh, he's apparently a registered non-affiliated vo voter in the United States. Um, um, he has a communications degree, uh, but we don't really know anything about him at all. There's no photographs of him. We don't know what he looks like. If you look for Dave Van Sant on uh, Google, there's nothing uh, linked to him. But just to end on a slightly positive note here, Brian, uh, they do at least say this, if we go back to the UK column again, uh, they say this, the UK column does produce credible, well-sourced news. Um, they then go on to say we produce uh, some conspiracy theory as well, which is why we've, they're categorizing us in the way that we are. But they do at least acknowledge that we produce credible, well-sourced news, Brian. So it's not all bad. It's not all bad, but there's a challenge for our, our viewers and uh, listeners can you get digging on media bias fact check? Can we actually find out who this organisation is, who runs it, who funds them? And then we can start to work out why they should not be telling the truth when they uh, comment on UK column reporting, which, of course, is overwhelmingly based on factual information, a lot of which uh, is coming from our very own government. Mm. Uh, maybe Alex has a couple of words just to add on that. Yes, um... What people often say if they have heard of UK Column and don't like it is that we push certain conspiracy theories, but like the better people who analyze globalism or the more credible ones, we use, as you say, primary documented sources. And when we get into this, by its very nature, nefarious and dubious area of have people been up to sexual mischief that uh, affects themselves in their public roles and their, their, who has a hold over them, we are very careful to report only that which one or preferably two sources have claimed about someone else. I didn't make that up about Etienne Devignon, for example. I didn't make it up about what Kirsty Blackman's alleged to have done. These are coming from people within global institutions who have got dischuffed and leaked. And in, you know, we are very careful with our, here it comes again, adjectives and adverbs to specify what we know firsthand, what we can refer our viewers and listeners to versus what is said by people who actually matter about a subject in question. We don't report irrelevancies there. Okay, thank you very much. But it needs challenging, doesn't it? If these For people sure. are arrogant yes. enough to set themselves up as fact checkers, they need challenging themselves. I think we'll end there. Thank you very much to everybody for joining us. Thank you uh, to everyone who's given our um, 1st of February news such a huge boost. Mm. I think we're up to over 80,000 views now. Uh, we do think that was an important uh, UK column news. So if you can help push it out and share it, that would be absolutely great. And again, I'll say, please come to the UK Column website and look at the articles. Uh, we know many people are going straight to the YouTube channel, uh, but of course, there's lots of background articles and information on the website itself. That's it. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. We'll, we'll be back in 10 minutes, of course. Oh, for of extra. course, we'll be back in 10 minutes. Indeed. Yeah. How could I forget? Yeah. OK, bye bye.